Hello, faithful listener. Reichert and I deliberated on whether to post this podcast today, given the recent protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd. While we certainly don't want to detract from the much-needed attention of the country on police brutality and racial inequality, we decided to continue with our normal posting schedule. While this podcast does not directly confront the issue at hand, we wanted to provide our listeners with content to engage with. Some of our previous episodes deal more directly with race in America. You may want to check out episode 2 of season 0, which is entitled Black Panther, Race in America, and the Church. Also, you may find our conversation about the Juneteenth holiday in episode 2 of season 1 relevant for the present moment. We stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters, and as is consistent with the biblical voice, will always strive for the vindication of the oppressed. We appreciate you joining with us in that journey. Thanks for listening, and for now, let's continue on with the conversation. Deconstruction is the religious buzzword for our generation. Statistically, the church in America is on the decline. Scores of young people are abandoning their childhood faith and leaving their local congregations. While many social causes are more supported than ever, it seems odd that a faith built on love for others is left on the cutting room floor. Yet both the church and the Bible are often seen as outdated and irrelevant. Many view Christians as a part of the problem rather than those leading the charge for justice and right living in our society. Perhaps such a faith should be deconstructed. But is that where it ends? Is there a healthy way for Christians to deconstruct the faith system they've inherited while maintaining a commitment to its core? Can we reconstruct Christianity for our present moment while honoring the traditions of the past? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the People. Welcome to Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalametta. I'm Lucas Manning. And hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, back for another episode. Episode yes. two. Woo! We're still still in lockdown here in Illinois, so that's yep. that's wonderful. Yeah, some um, some some changes though. It seems like elsewhere in the country as well, in terms of uh, you know restrictions being lifted and that's true. That's true. What have you? Yeah, I think. Illinois is going to stage three, so that's great. Yeah, yeah. Of the Slowly but process. surely, we're trying to, uh, we're all trying to get back to, you know, life as it was. Right. Before, or as close to it, I guess. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, so that's great. Cool. Uh, yeah, I guess today we're talking about, uh, well, uh, specifically why are young people leaving the church um, and kind of looking at uh, kind of like the deconstruction and reconstruction that a lot of people are going through with the Christian faith specifically, uh, in like America, but, uh, elsewhere as well. Right. Yeah. And broad, yeah, broadly speaking, um, yeah, just, uh, the, that whole process, like you said, of, mm-hmm. um, of deconstruction and, and trying to reconstruct something out of a lot of times what ends up being the, the shattered remains of what used to be people's faith. Um, mm. so, yeah. Yeah, totally. And I think, yeah, just a, I guess a good place to start is with stats. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, 
I mean, there's there's too many stats to quote. I don't think we really need stats to prove uh, to our listeners that. Yeah, that I think the, there's enough to, anecdotal stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, to show the decline. But uh, Gallup uh, talks about a sharp decline in the past two decades of church attendance. Um, Christianity Today has multiple things just talking about uh yeah this decline of of churchgoers in the pew um so yeah i mean we're not gonna spend too much time there but uh really yeah i mean this connects a little bit to our podcast last time about evangelicalism um whether it's useful uh, whether people uh, uh i guess identify with the term um kind of anecdotally about you know people kind of leaving the faith of the decline of mm-hmm. christianity in america just recently, the lead singer, who was not the original lead singer, but the, I guess, second lead singer <laughs> I of, think the, so. gr- of the group, Hawk Nelson, he mm-hmm. kind of, like, renounced his faith or said he didn't believe in God. Um, yeah, and he, he, wasn't, he said, like, in his post, he did a little Instagram post, but he said, like, it wasn't that he was, like, lying as he was, you know, as they were doing, like, Christian, Christian songs, obviously. It was just that he he said that he was pulling at a at the threads of a sweater, uh, just for for years until he realized you know there's no sweater left at mm. at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean this is this is kind of a a thing that's been happening. Um, yeah, and I'd times. say that. Oh, I'm sorry, I was gonna say that uh, that metaphor that he uses I think is a lot of the same kind same kind of sentiment that people who do uh, end up leaving the church. Um, mm. I think that's the same type of feeling that they have, right? It's it's like a slow, mm. almost drawn out process. It's mm. never just a a one event that led them to walk away from the faith. It's right. more of a, a gradual decline. Yeah, uh, some even say like it's it's logistical, so they'll just go off to college. They just won't find mm-hmm. a church, and then they realize they don't really need a church, and then. Yeah, they're just no longer in the church. Right. <laughs> and maybe they don't call themselves Christians, too. You know, who knows? Um, one uh, kind of interesting thing here that we'll cue in on um, is Barna did some research. Good, good old Barna. Always just <laughs> doing some great research for the church. Uh, anyway, and they polled in, in various different polls uh, younger people who had, you know, who had left. Uh, the church and kind of this they found six primary reasons um yeah that that people were leaving the church um so the first reason uh is that church seems overprotective um so in a lot of the young people's experience um you know christians demonize things that are outside the church um Mm -hmm. and they're they kind of ignore or are afraid of things like in the real world um the second thing uh, oh and I'll kind of give a little summary as I'm going through the points. Um, So the way I kind of summarize that is that the church is family friendly and isolationist. Hmm. Um, The second point is that teens and 20 somethings experience of Christianity is shallow. Um, So, I mean, that just comes down to, uh, you know, they haven't connected to the church. A lot of them said like church is boring. Um, It doesn't uh, engage with their interests uh, or like it's not clearly taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I'm summarizing that is I'm saying church is irrelevant. So one was family friendly and isolationist. Two is irrelevant. Three, um, the churches can come across as antagonistic to science. Uh, I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Um, yeah, there's this 
idea that that uh, that uh, the Bible is at odds with science uh, in a couple of different aspects, maybe specifically with Genesis one, uh, but in other places as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, young Christians are unsatisfied with how the church has has uh, I guess address the scientific relation- revolution. I guess yeah, exactly. <laughs> defined that relationship between yeah. faith and science. Um, so for that, how I'm summarizing that is that the church is ignorant. So family friendly, one, two, irrelevant, three, ignorant, four, um, the church experiences, uh, of these young people related to sexuality are often simplistic or judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean that the, I guess like the backlash of purity culture, um, that, I mean, I know I growing up, I'd had like the purity culture like curriculum or whatever it's called Mm -hmm. true love weights um which you know with that like i think the church used the tools that was available to them so i don't think it's like malicious by any means but Mm -hmm. i think it's it's it was unsatisfactory uh for some Yeah. yeah for a lot of young people um anyway so for that number four my summary is church is unforgiving so one, I'm going to keep going through these. We're going to get them in your head. <laughs> uh, one, the church is family friendly. Uh, two, church is irrelevant. Three, church is ignorant. Four, the church is unforgiving. Uh, the fifth reason is that they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. Uh, yeah, this one's fair. I mean, the the world is, or I should say the U.S. is increasingly uh, becoming more and more diverse yeah. Actually reflecting, I guess, Asia in that way where there's multiple perspectives that live together mm-hmm. instead of kind of one dominant Christianity. Yeah, and it seems like uh, the church's ability to, to engage with that has been, uh, I guess, yeah, less than optimal for, for younger Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one, number five, uh, I said the church is blind to diversity. So one, church is family friendly. Two, church is irrelevant. Three, church is ignorant four churches unforgiving and five the church is blind to diversity and then the last reason number six is that uh the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt um yeah so i mean hmm. i that might be more of a generational thing uh right but it might just be more of just a young person thing where we're asking questions you know right. coming into our own and it doesn't there might not necessarily seem like there's a place for that uh mm-hmm. And the the nature of doubt is, especially with the Christian faith, right? Is is it cyclical? A lot of times, mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, the the old adage. I mean, it's from the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun, mm. right? It, it is what comes to mind. It's like th- there are rehashings and tweakings mm. and nuancing of the same basic um, right. doubts uh, that people have, the same basic questions that people have regarding right. faith, the Bible, um, how we relate mm. to. Um, to God, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Even in Hawk Nelson, like we were talking earlier, the lead singer to Hawk Nelson, mm-hmm. like the the reasons he cited for kind of leaving the faith or like the questions he had, it was just basically the problem of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't know what that is, if, the viewer, if our viewers don't know, basically it's just, um, you know, if, a, if God is all good and God is all powerful, then like how can evil exist? So right. like that was one. It's either he doesn't uh, care or he's... Um, He's not powerful like we thought. Right. Like right. He's either not all powerful. Is. Right. Or not all good. Right. Um, so yeah, like he just like cited that and uh and like uh like the hell question of like whether people go to hell, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I Which mean, is yeah, interesting I mean, because it, they're not 
new questions, right? Right. And it's not right. like the Bible doesn't offer answers to it. Mm. Um, I've heard some people reacting to that, um, t- to his, I guess, coming out as as a non-believer. Um, mm. But he, again, it's not, uh, they're not questions that the Bible shies from. Mm. More so, it's almost as if um, he doesn't like the answer. And I'll broaden it even um, a lot of people who walk away from the faith don't like the answer the Bible gives, or maybe they they feel like it's an incomplete answer, um, mm. sort of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll talk about these six a, a little bit more mm-hmm. later. Um, I'll do a quick run. One one final summary here. <laughs> There's six reasons. The first is that church is family friendly and isolationist. Uh, the second is the church is irrelevant. Third, church is ignorant. Fourth, church is unforgiving. Fifth, the church is blind to diversity. And sixth, the church is a monologue, is how I'm uh, summarizing the essentially the doubt, uh, inability to, uh, to engage with doubt. But yeah, so obviously, maybe, maybe you're listening to this and none of these resonate with you, but I'm willing to bet that if you're, uh, you know, probably in our age group, maybe a little older uh, or a little younger, um, I mean, I know I've had these complaints at the church myself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe all of them at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think, I mean, I think they resonate like pretty, pretty clearly with, with our age group. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think um, a little bit of the problem is that we're frozen as a church. Um, mm. I think like, for instance, like the Billy Graham revivals, like those were great and like, you know, I, a lot of my like older generation, uh, or a lot of the older folks at church, like remember those things. And like, you know, that's like the Christianity they're like functioning off of, which is great. But the problem is we've like frozen, um, we've like frozen it there. That, um, that movement, that season of at least the American church had its, had its use, if I can put it, um, almost in a crass way, but it was, it was useful, right? Because it was, it was a pendulum swing to the other other direction um, from um, the Industrial Revolution, where mm. men went off to work in the factories, women stayed home and cared for their children. They're the ones who taught them um, not only their, their, their academic education, but also their religious education. Mm. And mm-hmm. so for the longest time during that season, you know, that that's when... Religion became, quote unquote, um, a, a more of a, a female thing. Like mm. men don't need religion, and so the swing to that was, I think, the 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 revival era, where you mm. see massive uh, families come out, and and religion became less of a uh, just a female thing, a thing for mothers to take care of, but it was also for for men to take seriously as mm. well. So I wouldn't. Oh yeah, I definitely wouldn't say that it was uh, useless. It definitely yeah, um, brought a a whole demographic back into the the mm. church that that was being lost at that point. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, they were within its context. Uh, that stuff was great and needed. It was mm-hmm. a fresh, you know, a fresh. I guess like, uh, um, what's the word? manifestation i guess or a fresh like interpretation of what it means to be a christian in that mm-hmm. context you know what i mean and so like yeah. yeah it makes that's great it makes sense um 
but you know as as we know you know the world changes yeah uh, even from generation to generation and so i think like you know it's a big buzzword like deconstruction um <laughs> at least in the circles that i run in yeah um like I, I'm like I kind of tired of hearing the deconstruction word. It's just uh, the cool like, thing to do. Yeah, I got to deconstruct your faith, or else you know you don't know how to think or whatever. <laughs> Which, to be fair, I mean, I had my own. I, I don't love anyway. Here's me trying to be like, I don't try to be cool. <laughs> well, the whole thing of deconstruction now, I think, is it. It's almost become like a badge that you put on your yeah. sash. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, are you, do you have deconstructed faith? Yeah. So I mean, so. Yeah, so it is a buzzword. It does make sense to me to deconstruct a faith that isn't relevant um, hmm. for you as a person. If it doesn't speak to the issues that you're looking at, you know, or the issues that you're coming across in your life. Like, I think it makes, it just makes sense, of course. Like, you're going to look, like, you should look at it with a critical eye, I think. Um, but unfortunately, it seems to be, like, where a lot of the, where a lot of people stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, yeah. what we're going to talk about about in in just a bit uh is uh yeah just a good way to continue the i guess i think the work of deconstruction um Mm -hmm. by you know by reconstructing but um yeah we'll get into that a little bit later Yeah, so one thing that might be good to talk about is uh, just like kind of the false remedies that yeah. uh, that some churches are going about to kind of stem this this trend um, of, of young people leaving the church. Uh, obviously, I think it's been identified, like I said earlier in the podcast, I don't think we need statistics to, to tell people this is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so churches have, you know, kind of taken really one of two ways to stem this and this is also from from that barner research um, and sorry just to did. preface the this part of the conversation i think mm-hmm. by false remedies we're not saying that the you know church leaders are meaningfully trying to you know put forth these solutions um and it, and almost i guess expecting them to work i think it's a, it's an honest attempt to answer mm-hmm. and address questions and address you know you know the, sure. the flocks of young people leaving but it is false in the sense of it. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't actually address the mm. um, the questions people have or the itch that is being felt by these young mm. people uh, or people in general, I guess, leaving leaving the church. So it's false in that sense. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's well said. Uh, the first would be uh, some churches are just literally trying to wait it out. So they think mm. you know once these young people get married, have children, start families. Um, then they'll be able to essentially relate to the church right. and to Christianity kind of properly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I guess the the point counterpoint to that would be like, unfortunately, there are like technological and social changes from the previous mm-hmm. generation. So just because someone's starting a family, it's no longer a given that you know they're right. going to be running running right. towards the church. Yeah, um, I mean, how many um, you know larger to mega churches um have you seen that are you know quote-unquote geared for um young families or families with young kids that sort of thing 
Um, right, I think that right. I, I would say that's probably the majority, at least in in my con in my immediate context of of suburban churches, um, mm. you know, larger size churches. That's really the, what they are going for. Mm. Um, and uh, th there there seems to be a disconnect there, though, because it's like for, for the people who do go back as families, it's mm. almost a uh, that whole idea of cultural Christianity sort of thing. Well, mm. it's it's a Sunday morning. It's what families do. It provides a cohesion, you know, within the family unit, that sort of thing. I guess we'll go to church right. sort of thing. That's, what right, I, that's how right. I was raised before I walked away. Right. Good a time as any to go back. Right. We want our family to be in the church or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, which, you know, I don't know, not an entirely horrible sentiment, but... God uh, can definitely yeah, just, use that for sure. Yeah, but just not really working with our generation, right. at least according to Barna. That um, and so the the idea, the fact that, um, you know, people in our generation are also getting married later mm -hmm. and uh, having kids yeah, later true. in life as well um, because they are focused on careers or, or paying off debt or what have you, establishing, right. establishing themselves financially. That gap is just going to be, that gap of waiting for, you know, that right. churches are using is just going to get wider and wider. Right. Yeah, I mean, you think if someone goes off to college at 18, they stop going to church, and then they don't start a family until they're 30. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's a they've good decade. Used, yeah, they've gotten used to a way of living, which is totally, anyway, yeah. So just that strategy is not, <laughs> not advisable, I mm -hmm. um, And then kind of the second, uh, the second, I guess, way that churches have tried to deal with this is like this being like relevant, quote unquote, um buzzword i think it's just yeah another buzzword <laughs> good old buzzwords um and yeah with this it's just kind of trying to cater to like the the young preference of like you know how there's coffee shops everywhere and like <laughs> extravagant worship and like perfect programming there's no awkward silences i don't know how mm -hmm. church was like for you but there was tons of awkward silences <laughs> in that service when i was growing up <laughs> It's like, it's like, is somebody supposed to be talking or why are we all sitting here? <laughs> anyway, so, I mean, the funny thing is I like, like some of these things I like, um, being, a like a guitarist who, uh, I guess, yeah, church guitarist, uh, is it's, I love like perfect programming and when things like yeah. don't go, aren't like going well, I'm like ripping my hair out. <laughs> I know. Whenever I hear silence, it's just, all right, come on, let's go. Let's <laughs> yeah, go. What's happening? What's who dropped happening? the ball is what I think. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so not that that stuff is bad in and of itself. <laughs> right, um, right. But, like, I think what they're trying to do is build, like, membership or, like, build the church on preferences rather than mm -hmm. substance, which I think, like, I, I, I think our generation, like, sees what's going on. You know what I mean? Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there's been kind of multiple, like, multiple people, I guess, anecdotally that I could talk about that. Um, are moving more towards like the high church um, yeah. uh, or like less programmed, right. not even high church, but like less programmed, less cool church. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, just because almost it's more, more seen oh, as more authentic, probably. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's um, just the, I mean, this generation of consumers is so much more tech savvy and they know when they're mm -hmm. being sold mm -hmm. on something. You know what I mean? They see it yeah. all the time in, ad, in you know, quote unquote, secular advertising, 
right? And mm -hmm. so when a church takes on those tactics, a red flag automa automatically is raised in their minds because uh, mm -hmm. they see it all the time in the rest of mm. uh, in the rest of life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean that's the constant struggle that the people of God have had. I think just over the millennia is mm -hmm. how do we how do we adopt enough of the culture? This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but how do we adopt enough of the culture to be, um, yeah, to be like worth, worth attending or to like, connect with people, right? but like not take too much culture on to where we've like officially lost the message. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that was Israel's struggle in the old Testament. It's like, uh, obviously like their laws and, and their rituals, like are very closely aligned with like their ancient near Eastern neighbors in the mm -hmm. sense of like how they're, how they're doing things, like what, you know, sacrifices is right. something that's, that's unique in, that's unique in the ancient Near East. Um, yeah, just many of the things uh, are, are common, but the way that they thought about it was supposed to be different uh, mm -hmm. in the sense of, for instance, with sacrifices, since we're already talking about it, uh, the ancient Near East would have thought that, uh, they're feeding the gods in the great symbiosis, quote unquote. That's from John Walton. Uh, we can, we, <laughs> I don't know. This isn't relevant to, we're on a rabbit trail, so we might not put it in the show notes, but look up John Walton. He's great. Um, basically, these sacrifices were like feeding the gods and then the gods provide for the humans so that the mm -hmm. humans can feed the gods. So it's this, you know, you do this for me, I do this for you right. relationship between people and the gods uh, back then. Whereas with Israel, it's, they're, they're doing the exact same thing, but they're not supposed to think about it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not supposed to think about, um, uh, yeah, like God doesn't, doesn't need their sacrifices to eat. Um, right. but yeah, anyway, so I think, yeah, I think this has been a struggle for, for not even just the church, but God's people over the, over the millennia is how do we, how do we relate Christianity to people who live in a culture without the culture essentially overtaking, mm -hmm. you know, the message. Right. Anyway. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I think kind of the, the actual remedy, I guess that kind of segues us a little <laughs> bit, uh, is just in good, uh, just good old fashioned contextualization. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a little bit of, uh, you have to do a little bit of cultural exegesis. Really. You have to, before you, um, before you you attempt to answer these questions, you you need to um, and and address those those questions and doubts and and what have you. Um, you need to first understand your context, hmm. right? Because basically, if you don't understand your context, any answer that you put forth to try to remedy those doubts, those questions you're asking, it's going to fall short because. Hmm. There hasn't been enough background work, right? So mm -hmm. for, um, like, it's something that a lot of, for example, missionaries do. Like, before you you come guns blazing into a, you know, a new area, you, you got to learn the culture of the people you're ministering to mm -hmm. first. Yeah. Because when you try to preach to them from a, from you know, the gospel is true, and the truth hasn't changed in that context, but that mm -hmm. context has. And so mm. if you don't understand that context into which you're going, then the way you try to teach, the way you try to, to preach or the ethic mm. that you're trying to introduce, albeit a biblical one, 
is going to fall short because it's not going to connect with that context. So right. you have to do a little bit of contextual uh, exegesis. So right. understanding what your context is. Right. There's kind of translation of uh, what's going on in the Bible to whatever context you're going mm-hmm. to. And it might even just be your own context. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which is definitely a, an intentional work yeah. that you have to do. It's a hard work. Your, yeah, seeing your own cultural you know, milieu. Right. Um, but yeah, and I think... Uh, we talked about the hermeneutical circle a little bit last podcast, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll we'll talk about it here too. I think it's a a big part of uh, how to contextualize well, or it's a it's a good way, um, I guess, to plot where you're at within kind of the contextualization yeah. uh, enterprise. Um, and I think kind of what what you were talking about uh, even before of, um, yeah, of applying kind of the universal truths that we find in in the scriptures to a context. And I think there's a difference between like learning theology and doing theology. Mm. Um, even like with the example you gave of like missionaries, um, you know, obviously missionaries are great, uh, but sometimes they can fall into that trap of just teaching whichever, like, you know, whatever culture they go to, just teaching them the theology that they've already written versus like, teaching the people to do theology within right. their context. Yeah. I mean, that's um, how, I mean, okay. you see that all the time in, in missionary history, right? Mm-hmm. When, when Japan, that's, that's the reason why Japan opened up and then closed down again, because eventually, because that was the approach that missionaries took. And a lot, I mean, a lot of times missionaries were the first wave before the, the rest of the empire from the country that they came from came in and right. kind of overtook it's a whole it. other can of worms. <laughs> right. But they became associated with each other, right? And and that mm, partly yeah. was to blame. B- part of that was because uh, of their approach of how, like what you were saying, they were, um, they were just teaching theology instead of teaching mm. the people how to do uh, and how mm. to think theologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's an important distinction to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that sense, like our faith should never be settled. Right. Um, yeah, just because of the, I guess, the changing nature of of culture and just reality, I guess. Obviously, there's persistent aspects of the faith. Um, you know, if Christ isn't divine, and however your culture understands divinity, um, you know, something's wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but that is to say, like, you know, it might look different. Even, like... Uh, I mean, there's ex- there's tons of examples of like language differences where like a word might be applied, uh, or a, a word might not have the same connotation in languages. So the way they think about like divinity or like think about, right. um, yeah, just I guess the different truths of Christianity are mm-hmm. different. Um, yeah, I think that scares a lot of us here in the West because mm-hmm. we're like, ah, oh, but then they like won't get it right. <laughs> and so I think that's I mean. Once again, that's that's another can of worms. But I think, yeah, I think Christianity is is a wide enough, uh, I guess, wide enough net to encompass like some of these different ways of viewing. Yeah, uh, viewing I think I think too that that betrays the lack of trust in the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? To to guide you um, into truth as you're interpreting so the whole idea of illumination as you're reading the scripture, right? Cause you can read the words mm. of scripture, but it doesn't change you. It's the Holy mm. spirit who opens 
the eyes of your heart, quote unquote, mm. to see mm. the truth um, in the text. It's definitely where the assemblies of God can help us Baptists here. <laughs> <laughs> Those yes. are our backgrounds, folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think one kind of example of this, um, and this is going to be very, very much so broad strokes, um, is like Latino liberation theology um, in the sense that it was an attempt to essentially relocate where theology was done rather instead of the academy or like with, you know, the educated elites, uh, the kind of the goal of it, once again, broad strokes was to like put the Bible in, in the populace's hand, like in the common people's hand and let them do theology from like, from where they are. Um, their, their attempts to get at what we're doing. I don't know if they like work necessarily for right. instance, liberation theology didn't really, for the most part, liberation theology was like uh, an enterprise in academia. Like it never really made it down to the, to like the actual people on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's, I think it's still like a good attempt. Um, and there was a lot of history, obviously in Latin America, that, sure. like in the, this happened at, I want to say like the seventies. A lot of sociopolitical stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, that, yeah. Right. And they're trying to reconcile, you know, like guerrilla warfare and right. like all these things um, with obviously their faith. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that's like what needs to be done. Like it won't it won't always be pretty. But like I think. Um, yeah, I think doing that is necessary. Um, and in a way, like learning theology, like we were saying, just like learning the just having a pastor or someone, you know, teach you the points of theology. Uh, it, it's not a bad thing. It can be helpful. Um, it's kind of like a, an exercise in historical theology. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is what the church has believed, right. um, which, which can be a good thing. Um, but I think, you know, we need to, I guess, ask, you know, what is, what is the Bible saying to my context? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and not reading my context back in the Bible. Um, because when we do that, it gets into all kinds of problems, but, but understanding um, that, the, that, there is that those two are intertwined and they should be mm, right. Yeah. Cause, Cause the Bible should speak into my context. Um, right. I, I think historically that's been, uh, sorry, what you were just talking about has been the case because it, just take a look at the Protestant reformation, right? It's the, the whole, the whole church structure of the Catholic church at that point, um, was to safeguard against heresy wrong mm. interpretation interpretation mm. of of the text and wrong theologizing um and, and obviously that that went to an extreme an unhealthy extreme um mm. and the the whole protestant reformation was a move back to uh, every man can interpret scripture every man should be mm. able to read scripture for his own that sort of thing and that still mm. resonates with us today right but i think there's always a fear of um there's always that fear of of heresy and wrongful interp mm -hmm. uh, and wrong interpretation of the text, um, and mm -hmm. so there will always be those. Um, I don't want to say power structures, but safeguards, mm -hmm. and they they end up mm -hmm. uh, eventually becoming those power structures that need to be checked and sometimes need to be torn down. And you see those mm -hmm. in movements like uh, liberation theology, or for example, the, the Protestant Reformation um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I think those those big revolutions in terms of theology um, can be uh, the, the hurt and pain that, that comes along with that um, 
it can be avoided in large part if the if those checks and I guess checks and balances happen um, not incrementally, but if they're if they're addressed as they come instead of letting them build up. I guess is mm-hmm. is, a, is a good way to say it. Yeah, I think that's I think that's yeah I think that's good. Um, yeah, I think one thing is that. So we we just talked about the hermeneutical circle as uh, helping us contextualize, um, which maybe I should explain the circle. I guess I haven't explained it in this one. We explained it last podcast, um, but basically it's just um, obviously if you envision a circle, at the top is kind of the resting point, which is you know just you know being being content with your religious system and you know feeds into like viewing the world, social political view of the world. Um, if we go around the circle towards the right, uh, something happens or our eyes are open to something in the world that causes us to doubt why our, you know, why our, uh, religious viewpoint doesn't handle this, or maybe we, yeah, we don't think it's adequate enough. So there becomes, uh, ideological doubt that turned into religious doubt. Um, we kind of keep going down to the bottom of the circle, um, clockwise around the circle to the bottom um and that's a theological doubt so okay like my religious system couldn't explain this like what about god and Mm -hmm. and how does that and how does he fit into this um keep going to the left is kind of i guess my favorite place in the circle which is learning to um have a new a new hermeneutic of the bible so a new way of understanding uh, a new way of interpreting the Bible that connects with your context. Obviously, um, like as you were saying, also within, you know, within orthodoxy or within yeah. the, the traditional beliefs of the church, but also, um, yeah, contextualized. Um, so that's what we mean when we talk about kind of the hermeneutical circle. Um, and really, it's about doing theology versus just learning or absorbing mm-hmm. theology. Um, so hermeneutical circle is great. I think the other aspect of contextualization, uh, that we need desperately is interpretive depth. Um, is without, without like a thorough understanding of, uh, of the Bible and its context, um, we'll just default a lot of times to what like the majority theology is. Mm Um, Christians are really good at essentially, uh, or I guess I should say humans are just great at confirmation bias. So when we see something, we load it into our pattern or our belief set that we already have, and then we stick it into categories. Um, so even if something doesn't, doesn't fit well uh, within our categories, we'll still find a way to, to Jimmy rig it in there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so if we don't have interpretive depth, um, yeah, it's just going to be not going to work yeah um so that's where yeah i mean i think you know a lot of people say like you know i'll just learn i'll trust you know the the scholars the pastors which i think is that's fair obviously everyone does not have the time or the energy to get into these things in depth but at the same time just the more the more lay people um and pastors who can practice interpretive nuance Mm -hmm. i just think the more enriched the church will be
Well, there's a, a hierarchy, I think, between what you were saying earlier about learning theology and doing theology. And we're okay with learning theology, but a lot of times, obviously, the work of doing theology is going to be a lot harder. Learning to think theologically um, about mm-hmm. it. So, I think that's where that's where that comes uh, into play, because then the uh, because we're more uh, inclined, we're less inclined to um, to doing theology. Um, there's there's a lack of interpretive depth um, there that just is essentially pervasive within the church because of the way it's been so far. Like, hey, we will you know we'll just defer to the people who actually know what they're talking about, uh, that mm. sort of thing. Or it can swing in the complete opposite direction where people are just uh, people take the idea of every man can int- every person can interpret the Bible to to its extreme and they just make it say whatever they want to say. <laughs> right right well, they just yeah essentially that's importing your context right. onto the text yeah so obviously interpretive depth can be kind of a a bit of a daunting task um and maybe some of our listeners don't feel super equipped um and obviously you're you're probably not going to feel equipped in one podcast so let's just let's just be honest about that uh but we figured we'd do a, just a short five by five um just giving you a, a, a few considerations uh, that both of us as uh, people who are studying this in grad school uh, make at whenever we're approaching a text. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five, five by five. All right, now it's time for a five by five. The part of the show where our Enneagram type five, that's me, gives us five facts, aspects, or tidbits that informs or connects with our conversation in a potentially surprising way. Uh, this edition, I should say, uh, is not super surprising, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll just give you five quick uh, considerations that we make um, when, we're, when we're looking at a text. Um, yeah, uh, so we'll just go into it. Uh, the first is word studies. Um, and basically what this is, is um, it's talking about the... Um, it's, it's something called semantic range between words. So essentially, and some of our listeners may know if they if they are bilingual, there's no uh, two words in different languages that share the exact same, uh, I guess, uh, group of meanings. Right. Um, there's some there's some difference, uh, just even within modern languages between Spanish and English, or mm-hmm. you know English and French, or you know anything like that. So a word study basically looks at the original Hebrew word. Um, and attempts to flesh it out within its context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like when when it says in the Bible, "Vengeance, uh, you know, belongs to the Lord," or "Vengeance is mine," uh, says the Lord. Um, you know, we understand vengeance as like a a revenge, uh, a, a kind of emotional, emotionally like uh, reckless, um, just like you know, over the top type of emotion mm-hmm. whereas you know within is the hebrew word actually give those same connotations right. the same baggage that the hebrew that the english word vengeance mm-hmm. uh you know has in our in our language so that's that's kind of what a word study is mm-hmm. the danger with word studies is thinking that you can pick any of the range of meanings of a hebrew word and it can mean that in that particular context or in that particular right. usage so that's definitely something to, to keep in mind because the way the context in which the word is used determines the meaning. 
You can't just mm. <laughs> it, mm. it's not right. useful to pick any of the you know let's say a word has ten possible meanings. You can't just pick option number nine. That sounds good. Right. It's like now you got to take into account what it's saying in that context, and that's what determines. Right. Okay, this is obviously what it means in in this right. passage. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you say that. Word studies get a bad rap sometimes because, yeah, as you said, people use it as kind of a, you know, a slot machine. They just, oh, I like that. That'll <laughs> I like preach. That way of under- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's not the point of it. Right. Um, the point of it is just to get a better understanding of your passage. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, yeah, you gotta, you gotta keep uh, like the context of the word in consideration. Um, number two is comparative studies. Um, so this is um, essentially comparing the the scripture of the bible to other writings that are found in the ancient near east Mm -hmm. and this is really helpful for uh, identifying the difference between reference and affirmation in the bible Um, so a lot of times things that are simply reference in the bible will get preached as if they're affirmation Uh, that is to say that just a cultural norm uh, or uh, something that would have been common to to the ancient near eastern context uh, is thought of as essentially revelation from God. But when you compare them to other, you know, other writings, we see that, okay, this is more uh, a cultural norm and it's not necessarily what the Bible is affirming and telling this story, Mm -hmm. or this isn't the point that they're actually trying to make. So that's what what comparative studies helps us with, Mm -hmm. is the similarities between the Bible and other writings of the period. That way we can understand what it's actually trying to affirm versus what's just in there as, you know, I guess cultural aspects, cultural right. aspects of the test. Right. Um, number three is grammatical considerations. Um, so this has specifically to do with, uh, you know, the Hebrew and Greek language. Um, and so, Aramaic. Yes, and Aramaic. <laughs> Little Daniel, uh, and other places, I guess. Um, yeah. So I mean, this one's straightforward. Uh, it's just there's a, as my Greek teacher, Dr. Sauer once said. Uh, it's like pulling off uh, kind of a translucent sheet off of the off of the scriptures. It just gives a clearer view um, when you're, you know, when you can understand it in its actual in actual original language. Sentences aren't um, formed the same way they are no. in English as they are in right. Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic. Something, yeah, an idea that's pretty clear in the original language might not necessarily be clear when, when it's translated to English. Right. Uh, number four is just the historical background and setting. Um, obviously, this is just really needed. Um, you wouldn't read a newspaper, you know, from now without like looking at current events. I guess newspapers. We don't re- even read newspapers anymore. <laughs> you wouldn't read a, a news article online, and uh, yeah, if you didn't understand the events that were going on, you know, not that the Bible contains any news articles. That's not a genre that they're familiar with, but. That is to say, you need to know the, the historical background and setting to understand what's being said. Right. Uh, and then, lastly, number five is just canonical connections. Um, so, how does how can this passage relate to to other uh, portions of scripture? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's multiple ways that people will do this. Um, you got to be careful not to load like later theological concepts, especially from the New Testament, back onto the Old Testament. Um, but you can say this is how the New Testament is using this Old Testament uh, passage, um, and yeah, just kind of see the um, the themes and the threads that are woven throughout the right. you know throughout Scripture and connecting your passage to mm-hmm. those things. Uh, so that's just a very quick crash course in biblical hermeneutics <laughs> for anybody who wanted it. 
that's what I use my 5x5 for today. Um, I'll also have a, if you want to know more about these things, uh, there's a very good um, academic but also accessible book by uh, Janine Brown called Scripture as Communication, which is really good. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes and yeah, you can check out more there. So yeah, to wrap up, I guess, um, I guess we'll, we'll kind of connect this back to the kind of six reasons we've been talking about right. from the Barna group. Yeah. Um, Perhaps a and really, kind of a good way to start answering these questions we've kind of been posing. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a, I guess a practical way to move forward, hopefully. Yeah. So one, uh, the first thing that we talked about is that the church is family friendly and isolationist. Um, so I think, uh, you know, with, you know, good contextualization, we don't need to shy away from risk. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible doesn't shy away from the risk associated with the full range of the human experience. Right. Um, so yeah, neither should we. Um, the second one is that the church is irrelevant. Um, once again, I think good contextualization struggles with the questions that are being asked in that context. Um, embrace the struggle. Um, yeah, there's a lot of questions the Bible doesn't necessarily answer that we might be asking. Uh, that's true. Um, yeah, that, that the ancient context just wasn't wasn't concerned with, for instance, physical origins or you know other other questions that we're asking. Um, so just learn to make friends with with that tension and that mystery and live there. And I think maybe that's not the, the answer everyone wants, but yeah, I think that's the one that's the one you gotta you gotta make peace with. Um, number three was that that church is ignorant. Um, with this one, I mean, I think the interpretive depth part of our conversation shows that faith and science are not in any type of, type of conflict. It's kind of a false duality mm-hmm. in our modern age that, that says that they are. Yeah. Um, so as I was saying in the five by five, we have to learn to differentiate uh, reference from affirmation uh, in the text. And so there might be, you know, scientific references that that they make that aren't necessarily right. affirmations yeah you got to be aware of the sets of questions that each um each you know quote-unquote text is is asking so in you know in one corner the bible in the other corner i guess science i'm not saying science right. is a text but you, you know what i'm saying they're asking <laughs> yeah, different yeah. sets of questions uh, and it doesn't right. necessarily mean that one is more right than the other uh, they're different and, right. uh, and i guess what we're saying is they um they they're not mutually exclusive they shouldn't be seen as mutually exclusive yeah totally um yeah so that was that was the church as ignorant which is number three uh number four was the church is unforgiving and yeah i mean i think i think everyone no matter what you know generation you're a part of kind of sees the the problem that that is um i think the you know the kind of grace and law understanding of the New Testament is grace, the Old Testament is law, which I don't think is a good, necessarily a good understanding, but it's such a widespread understanding um, that I think most people would say that, you know, church isn't a checklist and we need to be more, I guess, uh, grace-filled when we're interacting with people who've obviously made mistakes. And I think we need to welcome the mistakes of churchgoers. Um, uh, yeah, that's just something that I think the church can constantly work on. Uh, number five was that the church is blind to diversity. And yeah, I mean, like we said, the U.S. was becoming more and more diverse in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the nice thing is that the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are 
so complex and diverse when it comes mm-hmm. to ethnic, social, political considerations. Yeah. Um, so th- we find these things in the text, mm-hmm. you know, um, we find refugees, we find deportation, we mm-hmm. find, you know, all these, all these things yeah. within the text. Um, yeah, I so mean, the people that were learning... rescued from Egypt were a mixed multitude. Yes. Uh, shout out to World Outspoken. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I think just learning to engage with that from from our context um, and see mm-hmm. those considerations within the text. I think we're we're used to approaching the Bible as a book about theology, so we don't think about these kind of on the ground, mm-hmm. uh, you know, realities that that uh, that was in ancient Israel. Um, and then last number six was that the church is a monologue. Um, and I think what we need to do here is just embrace that hermeneutical circle we were talking about. Embrace the process. Mm-hmm. Um, embrace being unsettled. Um, the church, I think, needs to mirror the word of God, little w, and also the word of God, big W. Um, so the Bible and Jesus, <laughs> for those who are not following. I think we need to mirror the nature of those two things and that it needs to be dynamic. Um, it needs to be, yeah, changing. Uh, the same, but also changing, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I got. Yeah. Definitely. I, th- I think uh, we, we don't need to fear ideological doubt. Um, and I hope I hope it came across that, you know, deconstruction and reconstruction are important, um, hmm. but they need to be done. Um, yeah, I guess responsibly because <laughs> um, they, they can be hmm. tools uh, that lead to um, a um, a destructive end, I guess, if taken to an hmm. extreme. Um, mm. but they shouldn't be, um, shied away from for sure. Mm. Um, yeah. so we shouldn't be afraid of ideological doubt, deconstruction and reconstruction, that whole process. Um, and I guess for, you know, for church leaders, some, for ministry leaders, those who are, um, ministering to people who are dealing with that kind of doubt, those kinds of questions, they need to, you know, learn how to create a safe space from which to wrestle with those questions. Mm. Not uh, yeah. not to come up with programming to distract or, uh, you know, throw, um, you know, throw some lights up there. They won't think about those questions because those questions are still going to be mm-hmm. there. But what people really need is a space to ask those questions um, and mm-hmm. a space to deal with those questions honestly and biblically and faithfully, theologically. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess at the lay level, too, individuals who are wrestling with ideological doubt, they need to be willing to wrestle with their questions within the church and not be so quick to mm. reject it. Uh, be, mm. Because the, the church isn't some big boogeyman who is who is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Again, the biblical authors struggled with the same questions, right? And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the Bible is a Many space wherein, yeah, wherein the authors dealt with those same questions and the church needs to be the space mm-hmm. where those questions are asked and, mm-hmm. um, and theologized about. Um, so maybe, mm-hmm. yeah, not, don't be so quick to reject it. Um, as, mm-hmm. as human beings in general are off, uh, you know, are often doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found the more, <laughs> And this is a little bit of a personal note, but the more I like learn uh, the, I guess the tools for like right interpretation and I, you know, uh, or I guess at least faithful and honest interpretation, the more like I, I guess like I love what the Bible says and I mm-hmm. think it's like so relevant for, and to use the buzzword, <laughs> but I think it's so like 
helpful um, for not like the times that are happening in America right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the problem is it's just I don't hear it often from the pulpit. So that's where, um, yeah, I just, I just think the the more you get into it, the yeah, the more relevant it becomes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think that was, that's a good uh, good note to wrap up on. You, listener, thank you for, for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of, of Questions from the Pew. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on Patreon. Uh, we'll have a, a link in the show notes. Um, and we, uh, you know, we appreciate any support that you give us there. Uh, really helps us out. And obviously, if you can't support us financially, um, totally cool. But we'd love if you could give us a rating on iTunes uh, or whatever platform you're listening uh, on. Um, that will definitely just help others find our podcast and yeah we'd appreciate that yeah please go ahead and comment and ask questions definitely interact uh, with uh, you know our our conversation here leave us a a short voice message or even a text message at 312-725-2995 and we'll put that in the show notes as well this has been questions from the pew world outspoken podcast To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For questions from the Pew, I'm Reichard Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time.